You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. That was an awesome song. <laughs> I was a little worried, though, when Jana was uh, talking about the 100% story just before the offering. But I think it's a great story, and it actually has a lot to do with the sermon uh, this morning, too. So would you just join me as we lead in prayer for a moment? Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you are 100% God, that um, you do not treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities, but as as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is, is your love for us, oh God who fear you. We thank you, Father, for your incredible, incredible, lasting love. And uh, we thank you that you've put your love upon us as Christians, as people that love your son Jesus, people that have been awakened to you through sin being confessed and through ownership of that and understanding that there's nothing that we could do to escape it. it. We were in its clutches and we were victims and we were, we were idolaters, and we had to have someone rescue us. And Lord Jesus, you came and you rescued us. We thank you, Lord God, for the gospel. And even as we open up the Bible this morning and look in the Old Testament of the story of Israel, we see the gospel over and over again as you treated your people 100%, O God, in spite of their failings. And so may we be encouraged today, even this week, as we look at how you treated Israel and how you treat us. And may we be drawn to that love. And may we reciprocate with giving you all we can, because you are worthy, O God. Father, we lift up to you our church family. We lift up to you our needs. We think about the search for Uh, Director of Student Ministries, Lord, this position that we are looking for to help organize youth ministry, young adult ministry. Would you direct our steps, God, into the person that, that you have chosen for this position, Lord? We ask your guidance on those that are working hard to prepare, Lord, for presenting our church with a proposal of what building would look like in the years to come. And God, we pray that you would ready us in heart and in mind and as a body of believers to make that decision when it comes, Father. Would you uh, help us? Father, we, we pray for vision upon our church to grow deeper in our community with each other, in our love and friendship, as well as in our reaching out to this community and the nations beyond. And Lord, prepare as we gather these teams for mission to Bolivia and to Garden Hill. Lord, prepare and form these teams with exactly the people you want. We ask you, Lord, to prepare us as we get ready for another time of English conversation circles. And Lord, lead us to those people that we can embrace and love that are new to our country and that uh, need to have some friends. Well, Father, we thank you for these ministries. Lord, we want to pray for our city. We ask you, Lord, to bless Mayor Bowman as he has many responsibilities. May he be a man of humility, a man of integrity. May he walk, O oh God, before you. And uh, may he make good decisions for the sake 
of uh, this city. Would you guide Chief Clunas, Lord, as he seeks to govern the police services with integrity? Would you guide him, Lord, to, to uh, the things that are needed in our city to reduce crime, to create a safe place, and especially to address the needs of those that are most vulnerable and at risk, O oh God? And would you help all social services that are working along with the police to aid in this, Lord, that justice and mercy both would govern our city and would be a hallmark of Winnipeg. Father, we pray for our Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, and we ask you, Lord, as he is not only making decisions for our borders, within our borders, but, Lord, upon many other places in this world like the Ukraine or like northern Iraq. And, oh God, we pray that as decisions are made about these places, we ask you for wisdom upon him. And we pray for all those that are under his authority that wisdom would be given. A grant, again, Lord, to, <clears throat> to create just and merciful society. Lord, would you help us to do our part in our corner where we live, in the relationships that we have, and Lord, to be praying people ready to stand in the gap for those that need to be upheld by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask you now as we look at your word that you'd open our eyes and that you would be our instructor as we look at the things that you have to teach us in 1 Samuel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, if you'll have uh, your Bibles open at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is the portion of Scripture that we're going to look at today, chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. And if you're able to stand and want to, would you stand with me now and I'll read the Scripture to us. 1 Samuel chapter 8. <clears throat> when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and the donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, 
You will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. They said, no, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And so when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his own town. May God bless his word. You may be seated. In 1986, in Amsterdam, the largest gathering of itinerant evangelists on the world, in the world, was gathered in, in, in uh, over almost 10,000 people. Billy Graham uh, organization led this. It became, by the United Nations even, one of the most represented meetings on the planet in terms of ethnic diversity and representation. And one of those that were speaking at it was an, a Korean man by the name of Billy Kim. And Billy Kim went on to become the president of the Baptist World Alliance for five years. And he told a story during one of his messages that I'm going to share with you right now. It's about an American soldier who fought during the Korean War. And the commanding officer had given this soldier a direct order that he was to get out of the bunker and to go to the front lines and rescue some of the wounded soldiers they could hear crying. But as soon as the commanding officer gave the order and left the bunker, the man, the soldier, sat there and looked at his watch and sat there and didn't do anything. A few minutes passed by and a fellow soldier told him, did you not hear the commanding officer? And, and again, the man looked at his watch and didn't do anything. A few minutes more passed by, and finally, he leapt to his feet, he ran out of the bunker, and he started dragging soldiers back from the front lines, one at a time. Managed to rescue a few lives in that valiant effort. In the evening, after the, the war had ceased for a while and quiet had come, the soldier that had, had, had talked to him said, Why didn't you go earlier? Why did you keep looking at your watch? And he said... I was afraid because I knew I was not ready to die. I waited for the moment when I knew that my fear would be overcome. Because at a certain time every hour, my mom said she would pray for me. And when that time came, I knew I was under the shelter of her prayers. And no matter what awaited me, I could face it. At first, it appeared as though this soldier was acting completely out of fear. But it soon became apparent that he was acting on faith. Faith in the God that answered prayer. Today our scriptures look at a people of God motivated by fear. We often don't realize that some of the decisions we make are decisions that we make out of fear, actually. If we get underneath them. And yet even the decisions that we make out of fear are actually a faith statement. It's either a faith statement of how much we trust God or a faith statement of how little we trust God in our personal goings-ons. And so, in the scripture that we're looking at, God was less concerned about the outward appearance of the decision, but he was very concerned about the motive of their hearts. It's actually a, a very 
good example of our theme of 1 Samuel, which is on the banners at the front of our sanctuary, that, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God's looking at the heart. And so, are we motivated by faith or fear? Let's look at the scripture we're going to be studying today, and your insert in your bulletins will point you to the first point of our message, which is a persistent problem, the absence of spiritual leadership. We began uh, several weeks ago talking about how First Samuel really is a lot about leadership. We have a lot of lessons to learn about leadership. We're presented in the whole book of First Samuel with three principal leaders, Samuel, Saul, and David, as well as some secondary leaders that we've already seen, uh, Eli and his two sons and so on. And uh, we've read that <clears throat> during the time of the judges, which is just prior to the history found in First Samuel, there was a whole crisis of leadership going on. God would have to raise up a judge. He'd, he'd rule for a while. Some peace would come. And then he would die and, and there was problems again. And really, the, the theme verse of Judges is really the theme verse of what goes on in First Samuel. It says that in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. And clearly the persistent problem of Israel was an absence of godly leadership. And even Samuel, who is head and shoulders above all the leaders for a couple hundred years since the time of the judges and so on, uh, he even doesn't quite cut it as, as far as a leader that is able to produce other leaders to carry on after he leaves. And in verse 1, we see that uh, even his sons were not ready to follow in his footsteps. They turned aside to ungodly behavior. It reminds us of Eli, doesn't it? Who we studied a couple of weeks ago and his sons who were also not ready to follow in their father's footsteps. But there are some differences. One difference is that Eli serving in the tabernacle at Shiloh was possibly able to observe everything that his children were doing and should have known better than to have appointed them to be priests. Whereas in the case of Samuel, Samuel is at Ramah, and 50 miles south is, is Beersheba, where his sons are serving. And possibly when, when Samuel would make his circuit routes, they, 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 he came to Beersheba, and his sons just kind of put on a good show for Papa and made it all look good. And so it's not until this company of elders arrive at Ramah and tell him, hey, could you do something about this? You're about to die. And your sons, who might be serving uh, down in Beersheba, they're not really ready to take over, and so on. <clears throat> before we go on, let me just say uh, that we must perhaps confess before God that though we have many good examples of leaders in the Scriptures, we have more bad examples of leaders in the Scriptures. We, have, we understand concepts like discipleship, reproducing ourselves in other people. I remember years ago reading the book by Dawson Trotman, Born to Reproduce. A mature disciple is one who is able to take another unbeliever and bring them to, to the point of being a believer and they can reproduce. Just like physically, when are you mature? When you're able to reproduce. How many Christians are sharing their faith and reproducing in others? We talk about discipleship. We talk about equipping, leadership development. We talk about mentoring, pouring into one person the things that you have, have learned and gathered over, over time and experience. We talk about succession planning, 
so that we're ready for the next generation. And yet for all the talk, for all the theory, for all the books, for all the study of it, how are we doing at it? Not well. And, and, and the thing is that when you look at the scriptures and we see more bad examples than good. We, we see Moses, for example, who was one example that poured his life into Joshua and Joshua carried on. But did Joshua do that? No. We see Eli pour himself into Samuel after kind of messing up with his sons. And we see Samuel carry on. Did Samuel do it? No. In the New Testament, we have Paul who gave his life to Timothy and Titus and saw that ministry carry on. The, the best example, of course, is Jesus, who gave his life. And yet, even the discipleship of Jesus for three years would have been fruitless had it not been for the advent of the Holy Spirit coming upon them at Pentecost and empowering them for service. And so the problem that existed in Israel at the time, as we read in chapter 8, is a persistent problem today in the church as well. And it takes great intentionality to be able to overcome this and to see discipleship and mentoring and equipping of leaders take place so that it actually is reproducing. So I can imagine the way that the scenario of verse 4 unfolds and a superficial solution is offered to a very persistent problem. I have been long enough in ministry of a church or parachurch or mission kind of organization. I have seen human behavior long enough to just imagine and conjecture a little bit of what verse 4 looks like. In fact, we read in verse 4 that all the elders of Israel gathered at Ramah at, at uh, Samuel's doorstep. It would have been a sizable group of people. And um, in fact, the, the way that the Hebrew text uh, tells it, it says they gathered themselves together unto Ramah, suggesting possibly that they all arrived on the same flight at the same time and were standing together on his doorstep with a persistent problem and a suggested solution. I can imagine some of them might be very might have been very spirit-filled men seeking to honor God. I can imagine that some of them might have been very worldly leaders from some tribes of Israel. I can imagine that some of these elders were very vocal leaders and others were followers. Some were fence-sitters. Some were early adopters and laggers behind. Others were perhaps waiting to see what the majority would decide and then they would kind of go along. I can imagine that this group was made up of a, a bit of a mixture of people. But according to verse 5, they arrive and they say to Samuel, You are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. Now if, we, if the sentence would stop there, all of us would be given to look at this and say, Makes sense to me. I mean, come on, wake up, Samuel. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses had given instructions in the law of what kind of king they would appoint once they arrived in the land of Canaan, what he should look like, how he should behave. It was not in itself sinful to choose a human king over Israel. But in verse 5, the words go on to say, such as all the other nations have. And there reveals the motive 
of the heart. The motive of the heart. Verse 19 and 20 of chapter 8 is even more transparent. We want a king over us, then we will be like the other nations. We want a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Going ahead a few chapters in chapter 12 and verse 12, we see even more clearly as Samuel testifies against Israel. And he says, when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Chapter 10, verse 19, Samuel says to them, you have rejected your God who saves you out of all of your calamities and distresses. And you have said, no, set a king over us. The elders of Israel, you see, were motivated by fear, not faith. They had come to put trust in God as long as Samuel was around. But now that he was on the way out, they weren't sure they could trust God. God had been doing the very things that they wanted a king to do. He had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He had protected them and kept them alive for 40 years in the wilderness. He had given them the grace to conquer the Canaanites and drive them out. He had kept them from the Philistines and other groups already. He was fighting their battles. He was late raining down thunder or scattering people for no reason because of his great hand upon them. And yet they could not trust God. They wanted a human king. Why was it necessary to have a king like all the other nations had? You know, if you really think about it, you know the answer to this question. Because we are all a lot more alike than we are different. And the answer is that sin is not a foreigner to any one of us. That sin is not alien to our hearts. And that the essence of sin is the natural tendency that you and I have to prefer other things over God. That's the simplest definition of sin. You and I somehow are hardwired to prefer other means of security and safety and comfort and survival over God himself. We will substitute other things. We will look for other measures. We will try and control other means in order that we will not have to trust in just God and his sufficiency. We're not going to believe naturally that he is enough to take care of us because sin is a resident evil in our hearts and it is the law of gravity that you cannot shut off as long as you are in this body and it must be overcome by another law that is greater than the law of gravity of sin. Paul talks in Romans 8 about it as being the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of sin and death. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith overcomes that fear. In 1 John, it says that perfect love casts out fear. We don't have to live in fear. And so all the decisions that we make out of fear are unnecessary if we had faith. In God. If we apply this to where we are at as a church and in the brink of looking at a decision to build or to not build, God is very interested in the motives of our hearts, more so than He is interested in the outward decision that we finally come to. He is very interested in the motives of our hearts. In fact, brothers and sisters, if we build out of fear instead of faith, we sin. And if we do not build out of fear instead of faith, we sin. 
And if I thought for a moment that that our leadership of our church was on a superficial solution trajectory for a persistent problem, I would want to be the first to stand up and say, I don't like this. We're responding out of fear instead of faith. And if in the process of the next few months, as we get the costs and the commitments and the facts and all that this project is going to involve for the next few years, we see that in the process, somehow we're responding out of fear instead of faith. I hope some of us will stand up and say, I don't see God in this. I don't see God in this. Someone that has been in ministry for some 30 years or more recently said to me, that the worst decisions he's ever seen in ministry were decisions made out of fear. As someone prayed last time we looked at the rough draft design of the future possible building, that God would keep us just enough off balance, you see. That we would learn how to walk that line of common sense and just being enough off balance to be totally having to trust in God and that that coming together in unity by God's people, we will somehow know that the leading of the Lord is thus for the next coming few years of our lives as we commit to what ministry in the kingdom looks like. So Israel asks for a king. And in chapter 8, verse 6, it says, it displeased Samuel. I love that. It's a very short sentence in Hebrew. Israel asked for a king and it displeased Samuel. And so what did he say? It says, it says, and so he prayed to the Lord. Do you know something? I don't know about you, but in my experience sometimes in church life, when somebody hears something that displeases them, from the leadership of the church, in this case, the elders of Israel, if somebody hears something that displeases them, instead of going directly to God in prayer, they go to everybody else that they think has the same opinion they do. That's a dangerous thing to do, isn't it? Because you see, the natural inclination for every one of us is, is that we think, okay, now we're going to be maybe building a building. I don't know if I like this idea. I'm going to find someone else who doesn't like the idea. Or else we're going to talk about it and say, this is awesome, finally, after so many years. And so we're going to look for somebody that has the same opinion. Can I make a suggestion? That if you in your little family unit or you in your friendship unit or your life group or wherever it is that you hang out within our church family, if that is a group that is all of one mind on the building thing, could you please, by faith in God, step out of that little place and find someone that has a completely different opinion and just talk with them and listen to them and better yet, do what Samuel did, pray with them about it. How are we ever going to know that God is leading us as one body in unity if we don't do that? It's part of what we have to be doing. Now, God's answer to Samuel's prayer surprised him. Here's another principle as an aside. Be careful going to prayer on things if you've already got the answer made up in your mind. I'm sure that Samuel was very surprised when he said, Guess what? They're asking for a king, a human king, like all the other nations have. They just want to be like the Ammonites and the, and the Parasites and all the other ones around here. 
I got you awake. That's good. And, and, and God says, yeah, give them a king. Give them what they want. Samuel probably really recoiled in his spirit at that answer to prayer. We need to be careful when we go to prayer that we don't have them, our minds made up already. Verse 7, listen to what the people are saying. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. Samuel demonstrates a very important principle here. God is teaching him, Samuel, it's not about you. Don't take this personally. There's many times in my ministry over the years, or Pat and I together in ministry, where where there was an attack upon us or me. There was opposition against decisions being made, things being taught or preached and so on. Heavies come against me. And if I would have taken every one of these things personally, I would have been of no use to God. In this case, Samuel, Samuel's history in the Bible would end in chapter 8. If, if, if his ego would have been on the line, God had to say, Samuel, it's not about you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. But because Samuel was a godly man, he, he, he actually is, in the next ten chapters, an incredible Voice of God in a people that were wandering away from God and God was speaking into their hearts through Samuel. Chapter 8, verses 11 to 17, Samuel does exactly what God told him to do. He tells them what a king's going to do for them. Notice in that scripture, the word take is over and over again. This is a very important lesson. The king that God has been for Israel is a giving God. He gives and he gives and he gives. And the king that they're about to get is going to be a taking king. And you know, the same thing goes for you and I. That when you substitute something in place of God for your, in your life, that thing as it rules your life, is a taking thing. It's going to take more than it gives. It's not going to be like God. And notice that the the verse 17, it says, you yourselves will become slaves to this person. I mean, that should have made them wake up. We we remember our history. We were slaves for over 400 years in, in Egypt. But in verse 18, it doesn't matter. They said, no, we want a king. Doesn't matter, we want a king. And so God says, give them what they want. It says, and listen to them and give them a king. Translated, give them what they want. Even though they want it for the wrong reasons, give them what they want. What is that? That is a disapproving approval. That's what it is. And if you are a parent this morning of children over 13 or 14 or 15, you know Likely what it means to do disapproving approvals. Because there comes a time when a child has to start taking responsibility for their own lives, their own decisions. And you give them your counsel. You, you pray for them. You, you say, this is what I think you should do. But you let them make the decision. And sometimes you just got to give them your disapproving approval. And that's what God's doing in this passage. He's saying... Let them have the king. 
There are lessons to be learned that can't be taught around the dinner table in the family home. Now, whatever happened to the heavy hand of God that we saw last week in chapter 7? Do you not sometimes take your Bible and say, is the God of chapter 7 the same as the God of chapter 8? You know, is this father that's got the heavy hand against his people so that they will, will feel conviction and walk in his ways, is that the same father that is now saying, give them what they want? There's a question in your reflection, for your reflection this week in your life groups or in your homes or wherever you, you look at these things. And it says this, be careful what you ask for. Is it comforting or discomforting to know that God sometimes gives us what displeases him? I'm still, I'm, I'm still pondering that question. Is it comforting or discomforting to know that God sometimes gives us what displeases Him? Well, the last thing that we want to share on this in the fourth point, and it's the most important one. In fact, all of the rest of this story in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 end up in chapter 12, and it's so important that we get there. And I'm sorry that today we haven't had time to introduce you to King Saul, the very first king of Israel. But the fact is that he's not much to look at. Well, he's actually a lot to look at. He's not much substance behind looking at skin deep. So they find Saul. You can read about it in chapter 9. Wonderful story. They find Saul. Samuel finds a king for them. It's interesting because his name, Saul, means asked for. You've asked for a king. I'll go find you one. He finds one. His name is Saul, asked for. And he's head and shoulders above everybody else. And he's handsome. He's from the puny tribe of Benjamin. That doesn't make sense, but he's a nobody. And the fact is that he starts out his kingship and he is a nobody. He doesn't, he does, he's not a good king. He takes, but he does not give. And, and in fact, in chapter 11, we don't take time to look at it, but in chapter 11, there's this incredible story where one of the groups of Israel, one of the tribes, is, is being attacked by another group. And they say... You either subject to us and serve, or we're going to gouge your eyes out. And, and they say, give us a week to make, to make the decision. <laughs> they send the word around to all of Israel. Will someone come to our rescue? Why wouldn't they think about Saul, the king, that's supposed to go and fight their battles? Because he's a nobody. Because he's not doing his job. But, but by the grace of God, what happens in chapter 11 is that Saul who comes out of the, from the fields, coming into his town, he hears about this news. And, and he responds, and it says in the Scriptures, in chapter 11, the Spirit of God falls upon Saul, and he musters the men of Israel, and they fight against that, and that, that fellow tribe is not made subject to enemies. You see, see, God, the true king, had to bolster up this little propped up human king in that moment because he was not going to do the job. You see the mercy of God in this. Incredible. And in chapter 12, we get the, the sweet spot of this whole section comes in verse 19. It says that 
Israelites are being confronted by Samuel about the sin of asking for a king. And they say, pray for us, for we have added to all of our other sins the evil of asking for a king. And Samuel says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then look at verse 22 and 23. He says, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way of what is good and right. Wow. The lasting love of God. Incredibly, Samuel is an incredible example here because he takes his cue from God. He's displeased with the decision that Israel's made. But Samuel takes his cue from God. He says, well, if you're going to love these people, then I'm going to keep loving these people. If you're going to pray for these people, then I'm going to keep praying for these people. If you're going to put up with the disobedience of these people, then I will put up with the disobedience. And if you're going to keep on trying to teach this people, then I will keep on trying to teach this people. Samuel is an incredible example because he took his cue from God, his father. And in chapter 22, uh, 12, verse 22, the, the center of the gospel is mentioned here. The key lesson in the text or the story all drives toward this point. And that is that God, our Heavenly Father, for His own glory, takes pleasure in His children. The thing that's amazing is this thing they chose to do displeased God, even though He still took pleasure In his people. Do you see the gospel there? You and I, if we're we're Christians, we're children of God. We we make all kinds of mistakes. We make wrong decisions. We, We disappoint God. We displease our Heavenly Father. But you see, his pleasure and his relationship with us is not based on our doings, our behaviors. It's based on the fact that for his own name's sake, he has set his lasting, covenant, long suffering love upon us. And he delights in us, not in our things we do, but in us. He takes pleasure in us. That's the gospel. We don't deserve that kind of love. Our going-ons don't deserve that kind of treatment. But that's what God has done. And the gospel presented on the cross through Jesus Christ is the gospel of Samuel here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 12, in chapter 12, that the God who has set his love on us will continue to take pleasure in us. Would you stand with me as we conclude in prayer? And as we as we conclude, I just want to ask that God would penetrate his message and get his message past our our minds down into our hearts. Let me pray for us. God our Father, we thank you for your word and and Lord as we as we look in the mirror of your word, in this case, in, in 1 Samuel and the people of Israel, we, we look at that picture and we see a picture of ourselves in the mirror. We look in that picture and we see how, how many times we are prone to substitute other things in your place and prefer other comforts and other mechanisms instead of trusting in you. 
And we also see, even as you showed Israel your steadfast love, we see, O God, how you continually delight in us. You take pleasure in us, your children. It boggles our minds. But that is exactly what we sing about. That is why we adore you. That is why you're beautiful in our eyes. Because there's no love like your love, O God. There's no mercy like your mercy. And there's no God like you that could ever take over our lives and and give instead of take. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love. And this, this morning as we dismiss, Lord, we pray that the lasting love, the long-suffering love of God our Father and the grace, the grace abounding of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship, this intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit that we have, that it would be with each one of us today, this week, and forevermore. Amen and amen. People of God,